we, we want to be sure we at least get as far as getting Lot out of Sodom tonight. <laughs> Don't want to leave him there too long. Uh, he lingered on his own. We kind of left with that thought here in uh, chapter 19, verse 16. It said, And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Eternal being merciful to him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. So the two angels that were there visiting with him uh, took he and his wife and the two daughters and actually gave them some help, got them out of the city limits, out the gate, uh, because... She was, as we'll read a little later on, she was not too inclined to leave, and he lingered. So he wasn't too inclined either. And I kind of, that's in a way difficult because of how sin-sick the city was, and yet as I left some questions in mind yesterday, you know, a lot of it's what you get used to. Uh, This is my home, this is where I am. This is what I'm familiar with. And you can overlook a lot in order to remain with that which is familiar or that which you have, where you've grown up, what you like or liked about an area. And for human beings generally, change is difficult. As humans, we generally like the status quo. Uh, we we will put up with a lot of pain and agony and misery and unhappiness and frustration a lot of times not to rock the boat. That's kind of a human thing to do. Now, I, I say that in general. Some people make a life out of rocking boats. I mean, that's just their, that's the way they live. And others are so conservative that they wouldn't even get in a boat. So, uh, you know, you have both ends of the spectrum, but at the same time, we do like the familiar, and I can see perhaps why they hesitated, even though it was a very bad place. And you would think, after the scare they'd had the night before, with the angels wanting the men, I mean the, the sodomites wanting the men, and then offering the daughters, you'd think the daughters would have been petrified and wanted out of there immediately. And the mother of the daughters, you would think the same way, and what about the father? But he's he already had a mixed up deal there that I don't understand to, to begin with and thinking of offering his daughters. That's just beyond me. But maybe there were social pressures or maybe some kink in his brain that I I just don't grasp. I, I don't think we have to justify everything here. Uh, we can we can look at it and say that makes sense or that doesn't and this person might have had basically a righteous life but who among us doesn't have some strange quirk in our personality? might not be quite that big a quirk, but uh, just seems strange to me. And I'm not going to try to justify it. Anyway, I kind of wanted to make a point here while we're here in the story of Abraham that this story projects forward to the end time. We're his seed and... The story of Abraham, we've already been told in Isaiah 51 that we're to look to him from the hole whence we were digged. And we're told to look to Abraham and to Sarah in Hebrews 11. So everything back here, we're instructed in the New Testament to carefully look at and observe. And even the prophecies of the end time said that we are to turn our hearts to our fathers, and this being one instance of that. uh, It has been apparent through the ages that God wants his people separate and distinct as much as possible from this world. And Christ, even in some of the scriptures that we read the other night at Passover, uh, indicated that. I want to go through a few this evening along those lines, so that we might better understand what God's approach and attitude is in our relationship with this world around us. And it touches on some of the policies that the church has had that have gone back, oh, 50, 60 years anyway, if not further, 
uh, about not only adults but about our children and what relationship they should have with the world, uh, whether or not they should date outside the church, what about adults, singles dating outside, uh, uh, what about marrying someone who is not uh, converted. Uh, there are policies like that that I, perhaps we've alluded to here and there and maybe have not been fully explained. And I think that we need to understand a bigger picture of why God would have us do the things that we do and why the church policies have been as they are. If you understand something better, then it's easier to accept it and live with it than it is if you think, well, they're just being mean to us or, you know, how whatever. Uh, why do we do the things we do? So let's look at some of the scriptures in regards to relationship to the world. We have right before us uh, an example of where God told Lot and his family, get out of Sodom. And they had difficulty with that, the wife especially, and he lingered. God was merciful anyway, and at least set them outside the gate. He gave them a, a start to do what needed to be done. Uh, and it says, And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, verse 17, that he said, Escape for your life. Now we know that there's a time coming in the not-too-distant future when we're going to be under these very same instructions. Don't go back in the house. Don't try to go get anything. When you see the armies surround, go immediately. So this story has to be instructive to us in what people have done in the past and what we are to do in the future. Escape for your life. Look not behind you. Neither stay you in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And it does tell us there in Matthew 24 that those which be in Judah flee to the mountains. Same kind of a situation, almost identical. Lot said to them, Oh, not so, my Lord. He's going to argue. We're going to obliterate this city. Run for your life. Don't even look back. Hey, wait a minute. Can you believe that? Behold, now your servant has found grace in your sight. You've already shown some mercy to us and put us outside the gate. And you've magnified your mercy, which you've showed to me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. I'm scared to go to the mountains. What a wuss. I can't go to the mountains. I might die there. Well, you're sure going to die here. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to us, but what if your cat's in the house? It's time to go, or your dog, or what, you know, your Bible. Some people even pack their flea bags ahead of time. You know, put their Bible and their toothbrush, and I don't know what all they got in there, and uh, keep it handy by the door, hanging on the doorknob, I guess. I knew, I knew people back in the 70s, uh, seven, just before 72, boy, they had the car all packed and stuff in the trunk, ready to go. When they got the call, they could just run, jump in the car, and go jump on the, the airplane. So this is not a new thought, but uh, here's this guy. We're, we're about to drop a thousand hydrogen bombs here. I mean, the fire and brimstone that came out of heaven or out of the volcano or however it came uh, would have been commensurate to more than nuclear weapons in terms of power and so on. An earthquake, an earthquake is Far more. I can't escape to the mountain unless some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee to, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Some people are just panicked to leave town. They, they, you know, they get out in the wilderness and they come apart and go berserk. They can't handle aloneness or anything. They've got to have people around all the time and they've got to have noise. Some people are that way. 
with it's what we've become accustomed to. And we can't stand quiet in our own thoughts, I guess. Some people are that way. We become dependent, in other words. And he said to him, See, I have accepted you concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for that which you have spoken. I'll preserve this little town. Haste you, escape there. For I cannot do anything till you become thither, or get out of here. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, or Little. So, God was merciful and get leading him to the gate. Then he, the angel said, hurry, get out of here. And then he put up with the argument for a little bit and did allow him to go to Zoar. But we haven't heard the rest of the story yet. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the eternal rain upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the eternal out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the whole plain, the whole valley, all the cities that were there except little Zoar that he saved for Lot. But his wife looked back from behind him and became a pillar of salt. There was a point at which God said, I've warned you. I've made an allowance for you. I've said, don't look back. Hurry. And she looked back anyway and froze into salt. Now, that may have been from the brimstone and so on that turned her because of the heat and so on. I don't know. But at any rate, she didn't take another step. She melted at some point, I suppose. They just couldn't follow instructions. So human. Well, I'll follow to a degree, but I don't think we ought to mess with God, do you? We better take serious the things he tells us to do. So let's look at some of these scriptures then. Uh, let's go to 1 John 2, first of all. Now that one, somebody read the other day, but I want to go back to it again in this context. 1 John 2, uh, verse 15. 1 John 2, 15. Love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. It says, don't love this world. I imagine the word here is cosmos, which means this society or culture. It's okay to love the earth that God made. He created it. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the culture and the society or the cosmos. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that's a fairly plain statement, isn't it? People say, I love God. But if they try to love this world, this society, the culture that is around us, they love the things, not just the people, but the things that are in this society. He said, if you love those, the love of the Father is not in you. You do not have the love of God. Now that's by God's definition. I don't care what your emotions are. It isn't God's love. It might be feeling, but it's not God's love. We have to make a separation between our feelings and how God defines things. How does he define sin? The transgression of the law. How do people define it? Well, they, everything from here to there. But our feelings are not the key. It is... What does God say, and have we got our thoughts in line with it in our actions? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, is there any of that around in the world? This was written a long time ago, maybe it's out of date now. Is there, is there still lust in the world of the flesh? I think it's more profound and more obvious now via electronic media than it ever was before. The lust of the eyes, things we see that we want, the pride of life, a lot of people have a lot of ego, they're proud of where they've been, they're proud of their brain, they're proud of their body, they're proud of their 
heritage, they're proud of their whatever. It says that's not of the Father, but is of the world. Well, I got my pride. Well, you got to get rid of your pride. We're not supposed to be proud. The world passes away and the lust thereof. God says, I'm going to do away with it. What did he say about Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm going to do away with it. Did he do it? You bet he did. Is he going to do away with this world, its culture? You bet he is. If you hang on to that, you'll be destroyed with it. But he that does the will of God abides forever. He says, if you'll obey God, you can live forever. But if you cling to this world, you're going to die. Little children, it is the last time. And I'll tell you what, it's closer to the last time now by far than it was then, and we're really close. And as you have heard that an antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. What does antichrist mean? It just means against Christ. And there are a lot of people that are against Christ. They say, I love Jesus, or I love Christ, but they do not the things that he say, says, and therefore the love of God is not in them, by God's definition. What is God's definition of love? 1 John 5, 3, just over a couple pages. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. So you can't love God unless you keep his commandments. You can have feelings. You can say you love Jesus and have emotion, but you can't love God unless you keep his commandments. That's how he defines love. So anyone who is going the way of the world, when God is going the other way, is anti or against Christ. So when you do things that are of the lust of the flesh, the eyes are prideful or whatever, and go that way, then you are against God. You're Antichrist. Antichrist is not just one guy at the end who's going to be against God and lead the world that direction. Anyone who goes with him is Antichrist as well, going the way that is against God. And that's the way this whole world is going. It is only basically a few in the church who are trying to go the right way. Matthew 6, verse 24. Keep moving here because I... I want to get through these tonight. Matthew 6, verse 24. <laughs> no man can serve two masters. It is impossible, in other words, to serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon man, his society, or money, or anything that is unrighteously used. You just can't be going two ways. You can't straddle the fence. You've either got to do things God's way and serve him as your one and true and only master, or if you try to divide it and stay with the world as much as you can, God says you can't do that. It's impossible to do. Uh, let's see, Romans 12. Romans 12. This is a familiar scripture and pivotal. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, here's what he expects us to be a living, walking sacrifice for others, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Isn't it reasonable that he created the earth, the heavens, he created us, and as creator we should honor him and do things his way. And be not conformed to this world, don't begin to look like, sound like, act like this world. But be you transformed. 
by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It takes a lot of study, a lot of thought, to understand the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, what God would want of us in every situation. And sometimes it's difficult. What would God have me do here? Uh, well, we have to make choices. Sometimes it's difficult to know. But we're not to be like the world, we're to be like God. First uh, Peter 2. First Peter 2. And here I want uh, all about verse 11. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, they may despise us now, but someday, when they've seen us do the things the right way, that we should do it, and they see Christ come to rule on this earth, and they see which way things are going to go after all, then they will have great respect for us because they saw us doing God's way before Christ came back and God's way became the normal way. This society around us is not going to be normal. It's going to be gone. Everybody will obey God. But see, he, he tells us we should, we should not fit with this world. We should be strangers and pilgrims here. People should look upon us basically as strangers. What is a pilgrim? Someone who's just passing through. They're not staying there. They don't plan to be there. Another place calls us ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is someone who represents one company, country and goes to another country to represent his country. He's not a citizen of that country. He's there as an ambassador. We're here as ambassadors for Christ to represent his kingdom on this earth. Someone says, all right, now I, I need to know about the kingdom of God. Who do I talk to? Well, go to his ambassador. Who would that be? Well, that's those riffraff living out there in those Quonsets. <laughs> you know, we're ambassadors for God. What kind of answers will they get if they come? Probably won't, some they don't like. But we're to be strangers and pilgrims. We're not to feel settled here. And we know we're gonna, that this world is going to try to destroy us and we're going to run for our very lives like they were instructed to do back there. All right, let's go to uh, John 15. I just uh, referred to that, but I want to go back and read it right quick. John 15, uh, verse 17. <clears throat> These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If we are living the way we ought to be living, the world will not like us. They won't like us because we don't keep Christmas and Easter. They won't like us because we keep the Sabbath and the holy days. They won't like us because we seem odd. Uh, we're not like them in our way of thinking. There's another place that says they think it's strange when you don't run to riot like they do. They say, well, let's all go down to the bar and get drunk. Friday night, Saturday night, you're working with guys. They want you to go out and party with them if you work with them. And if you don't want to go out and get drunk with them, then they think you're odd and strange. You're not one of them. You work there, but you're not one of them. You don't go to the same excess of riot and partying that they go. And if you're around them and work with them, it's easy to listen to the way they talk and answer them because you want to be liked by them, so you fall into their way of thinking and acting and talking. It's really easy to do. And if you don't get involved in that, 
they'll think you're odd. That's funny. That dirty joke I just told was funny. Why didn't you laugh? If you don't laugh at their jokes and tell one just as ribald as theirs, they're going to think you're strange. So if you have your mind where it ought to be and think right, the world isn't going to like you very much. So there's a test for you. If the world really, really likes you, maybe you better look at things and, you know, wonder, am I doing right and thinking right? First John 1, John has several things to say. First John 1, uh, here I want uh, 3 to 7, I think it was. Yeah. That which we have seen and heard declare we to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Emmanuel. There's the first level of fellowship that we are supposed to have. Our main fellowship, our main talking, should be with the Father and His Son. That's where our fellowship should be. These things write we to you, that your joy may be full. If you have your relationship and your communication with God right, that will tend to make your life better. This, then, is the message which we've heard of him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We say, I love God, I walk in his light, and yet we're doing the things that this world is doing and imbibing of its pleasures and recreation and so on that are wrong. I mean, there's some things we can do that are not wrong to do. Four-wheeling isn't a sin. Uh, watching uh, the wrong kind of movie, I think, is a sin because you're looking at and seeing and hearing evil. We need to be careful. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So our first level of fellowship is be sure that we get it right with the Father and the Son and talk to them regularly. And then if we're living right, we'll be in unity and peace and like-mindedness with God's people and we can fellowship with them and it will be a good experience. All right, then uh, 1 John 5 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. Remember at Passover, Christ said, Fear not, because I have overcome the world. He didn't get involved with it. What did the world think of him overall? Most people hated him. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Emmanuel is the Son of God. If you don't really believe in the sacrifice of Christ and what he stands for, you're not going to overcome. Are people out in the world overcoming their sins and faults and foibles? Most of them aren't even working on them. They don't think there's anything wrong with them. It's okay to lie and cheat and steal and fornicate and adulterate and divorce and remarry and uh, anything they want to do. Basically, do drugs, do alcohol, do cigarettes. Most people don't consider that sin, if that's what they do. They have a way of justifying it and saying, what I'm doing is okay. We had, some we had a neighbor over there in Alaska next door. He was a severe pothead and uh, had no ambition, no desire to work, didn't take care of things. And uh, he didn't think there was anything wrong with him. He thought being potted all the time was fine. But he was kind of like a vegetable there, you know, kind of like one of the trees. But he didn't think there was anything wrong with him. Um, let's hit Revelation 18.4. This sounds just like pretty much what we're reading about in Abraham's day. Revelation 18, 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be no partakers of her sins, 
and that you receive not of her plagues. Don't live like her. Don't do like her. Get away from her. Otherwise, you're going to receive those plagues that Babylon is about to have. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Remember what it said there about Christ and the angels? Says, well, I've heard that Sodom's a pretty bad place. I'm going to go check it out for myself. Be absolutely sure, then I'm going to destroy it. Now, he's checking out this world, and it's pretty sinful. And he's already said ahead of time, they won't repent. I will destroy them. That's bottom line. Done deal. It's as good as done. Isaiah 48. We're laying some background here for some policies that have been in the church for a long, long time, and maybe people haven't fully understood them. Isaiah 48, verse 20. Go you forth of Babylon, flee you from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare you, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, say you, the Eternal has redeemed his servant Jacob. So he tells us to get away. Well, now we've read those scriptures that tell us to leave the cities and go dwell in the field, in the wilderness, and there you will be delivered. You're not going to be delivered in the cities. You're going to be delivered out there. So he's saying here, get out of it. Uh, I think it's Jeremiah says, get out of the midst of it. In fact, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 50. And here I want verse 8 first. Jeremiah 50, verse 8. Remove out of the middle of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans. Now Micah 4 does say, leave the city, go dwell in the field, go even to Babylon. So he says, what he's saying there is get out of the middle of it, there where it's the worst. Uh, don't leave Babylon, but get out of where it influences you. And here he says, get out of the middle of Babylon. Go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans. Be as the he-goats before the flock. There's a time not to be a sheep. And just go along with whatever's going on. There's a time to be a billy goat and get people out. Because he says, I'm going to assemble a, a war party and they're coming in. So get away from it. Uh, chapter 51. Here I want verse 6 first of all. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. Well, God doesn't just pick us up and haul us away. Right now he's telling us trouble is coming. Get out of her. Get away from her. Be not cut off in her iniquity. If you stay there, there is danger of being cut off in her iniquity. Those plagues are coming. That destruction is going to come. Can you wait till the last minute? I don't know. Go for it. <laughs> Will you get out in time? I don't know. When's the best time to do it? I'd say probably soon as possible, to be sure. You know, I'd, I, I would hate to see... You know, we, you hear on TV, well, the nuclear bombs are on their way to this country. You have 15 minutes to get out of the middle of Chicago <laughs> or Houston or, you know, or New York or L.A. or wherever. You got 15 minutes to get out of there before the bombs hit. Good luck. Better sprout some wings, I guess. You know, I don't know when they're coming. I don't know when this is going to happen. I don't know when it'll hit for sure. I do know it's coming. I do know God warns us. Now, you've got to figure your chances. You've got to figure out how long it's going to be. You've got to figure out the things that you need to do to be able to see your way clear to do this. God is giving us some time. But I don't know how much time. So that's something you just have to figure out. All I can do is read these scriptures to you and know that we're supposed to separate. Um, this is the time of the eternal's vengeance. He will render to her a recompense. He's going to bring it down, no doubt. Verse 45. 
my people, go you out of the midst of her. Deliver you, every man his soul, from the fierce anger of the eternal. I, you know, I think this is fairly clear. Uh, all right, let's go. Let's go to Isaiah 52. Here we want verse 11, Isaiah 52, 11. Depart you, depart you, go you out from there, touch no unclean thing. Now, here it gives us a little more instruction. It doesn't only say, get out of it, but it says, don't touch the unclean thing. This culture, this society, the way that it is, the way that it thinks, is unclean. We can't think like this world thinks or be like it. We read some scriptures on that already. But he defines it a little more. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Now, to me, it's not ironic at this point that God has showed us that Jerusalem may be right over here. The, the temple vessels are under it, and the temple has to be built. So this becomes not just a, a general instruction for us who are God's vessels, but if we bear the temple vessels, God says we have to be unclean. I mean clean. <laughs> we cannot be unclean and bear those. Uh, when the Ark of the Covenant was moved, you had to be authorized, you had to be right before God, Otherwise, like Uzzah, you died. And God is going to make it very dramatic here at the end. So we are supposed to be living as cleanly as we possibly can if we're going to bear the vessels of God. So he, he doesn't make any bones about it. Haggai 2, I, I won't go there, we've read it many times, tells the, the ministry to separate the clean from the unclean, to make it known what is clean and what is unclean. That's one of the main responsibilities we have, is to let you know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what we should touch in this world and what we should not touch. And if it's bad, whether it be food or clothes or, or entertainment or whatever it might be, we need to discern that and stay away from it. But you have to learn wisdom. You have to learn proper judgment. You know, nobody can follow you around and tell you which movie to watch, where to go, what to do all the time, what to eat. You have to make those decisions, and you have to learn to make righteous decisions. God's judgment of what is right and what is wrong. I am not going to become a movie critic and say, here's a list of good ones you can go see, and here's a list of bad ones you should not see. You... God expects to learn to have maturity, wisdom, judgment, and watch that which is good and right, and not that which is evil and foul and sinful. And that's a tough one, because it's hard to find those that don't have elements of sin in one form or another, and some pretty blatantly in them. But you gotta, you gotta learn that, and. God will judge you based on the decisions that you learn to make and do make. That's the way it comes down. My job to tell you, be sure and sort it out and use wisdom and make sure it's okay, then you've got to decide. All right, 1 Corinthians 7. Turn that watch around where it's the right direction. 1 Corinthians 7. And here I want verse 11. We're beginning to get into some of the instruction toward uh, policy in terms of, of things that we do and that the church has always done here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11. Now this is talking about uh, marriage, people that are married in the church. Uh, but in some cases, one 
half the marriage is in the church and one half the marriage is not in the church. And that makes for difficult times. To the married I command, yet not I, but the eternal, let not the wife depart from her husband. Now, when marriage is there, it is good if a marriage can work and not break up and be good, and that's the way God intended it. God says that. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now that's the way God looks at marriage in a general overview. But to the rest speak I, not the eternal. Paul is telling us here now, here is a judgment I'm making that isn't strictly in the Word of God. Could he do that? Well, this was something that had not been addressed primarily, and he had to look at the situation because there was no Scripture that particularly fit the circumstance they were coming up against. So he said, here's the decision I'm making. Now to me, it's very important that God saw fit to include this in the Bible. In other words, by having it to be part of Scripture, God accepted the judgment that Paul made here. It is canonized, holy Word of God now. Might not have been when Paul said this, but it is now. If any brother has a wife that believes not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So you, you're in the church, your wife's not, if she's happy to live with you and she doesn't give you a hassle, don't break the marriage up. The woman which has a husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or set apart by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. So God sets apart and even looks after the unconverted mate because of the converted mate status with God, and even the children looked after, even though one mate is not in the church. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage or bound in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So what he's saying here in a nutshell is if that person departs from you, they're not pleased to dwell with you primarily because of your religion is what he's talking about. That's a subject here. Let them go. You can divorce, or they can divorce you. And you are not bound to them in God's eyes. Now the reason Paul was saying, this I speak, not God, is because this is not something they had faced before. The church was fairly new. For what know you, O wife, whether you shall save your husband, or what know you, O man, whether you shall save your wife? But as God has distributed every man, as the eternal has called every one, so let him walk. And so I ordain I in all the churches. So, even divorce, God says, can be legally, and sometimes optimally even, done when you have contention, and they will not allow you to peacefully serve God. They're fighting you all the way. God says you're not bound in that circumstance. See, he takes the responsibility. If he called both of you, he would expect you to both be converted and make the changes you need to make and work it out. But if you've got one converted mind and one carnal mind, and the carnal mind will not allow the Christian to live the way God says, then God says, I take the responsibility that can be divorced and you are no longer bound. You can marry someone else only in the Lord. He makes that distinction. I mean, you jumped out of the frying pan, don't jump back into the fire. You had a carnal mate, an unconverted mate, and if they won't let you live in peace, you divorce and then marry another carnal unconverted one? No, this doesn't work. You're not bound to them, but you can only remarry in the church. Uh, there's a verse that says that specifically. Where is it here? 
Oh, verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she is at liber liberty to be married to whom she will only in the eternal. You can only marry in the church. You can't marry outside. Very specifically stated by God. And it's even getting to the point, to some degree, in the church today, with it as scattered and separate as it is, that you might have... Uh, a young man and woman who are in different parts of the church. And the ideology, the focus, the purpose, the doctrines maybe are so different that it would be a constant agitation. The calendar is one. Because one member of the marriage would want to keep the feasts here on this date, while another would want to keep them there on that date. And it can create all kinds of problems. Uh, which branch are the kids going to go to? Are they going to go here? Are they going to go there? Uh, you know, are we supposed to be preaching the gospel? Or are we supposed to be preparing the bride? There, there are a lot of issues that can come up and can divide a family and make it very, very difficult. So I would advise that you think carefully before marrying even in the church, if it is different branches of the church that would create conflict in the marriage and in the child rearing. And there are a lot of examples of people who have fought that. And it's not a pretty picture. Sometimes it does lead to divorce. So be careful. Second uh, Corinthians 6. Let's go there next. 2 Corinthians 6. Let me comment a little bit more on where we just were. If you're not to marry in the church, what is the modus operandi in this society today whereby people get together and get to know each other, become engaged, and eventually married? It's the dating thing, isn't it? Basically, we spend time together, have dinner together, go to the movies together, whatever, get to know each other. And if you get to know each other, sometimes you become start becoming attached to one another emotionally. It is dating that leads to marriage. And the church has looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and said that since dating is, a, is part and parcel with marriage, you don't date outside the church. There is a danger if you date outside the church of becoming emotionally involved with someone and then not being able to turn away and walk away and you go ahead and get married after all and then you do have problems. And I have seen myself Dozens and dozens of young people over the years who have thought, well, it's okay, I'll just go to dinner, it's not really a date, we'll just do this. And first thing you know, they're emotionally involved, and it, their parents, the ministry, nobody can talk them out of it. And they go ahead and get married, and they have very difficult lives. If they hadn't been dating in the first place, they wouldn't have gotten emotionally involved and they wouldn't have wound up getting married. You know, it's cliff walking all over again. Walk along the cliff and hope the wind doesn't push you over. But you never know when the wind's going to kick up. So that is essentially why we have said we should not, our young people, our kids, should not date outside the church. It's even dangerous for them to go to a public school and sit next to somebody and get to know them too well because you can get emotionally involved there. When I was in, I was in public school up until the beginning of my ninth year, and I used to sit by some cute little old gals in the seventh and eighth grade, and I'd notice they weren't boys by then. Uh, viva la difference. Uh, but, you know, you sit, I remember one little blonde girl in seventh grade English class. I can still remember her. We were sitting with our desk facing each other. And we didn't learn a whole lot of English that year. 
know, dangerous situation. I'm glad I had to get on, today, I didn't think it then, but I, today I'm glad I had to get on the bus and leave the school and it was over. Because there likely to have been some kind of trouble if I'd have gone somewhere with that little blonde girl with those green eyes after school. It just, it's, it's dangerous. It's just dangerous. We need to flee temptation, it says. Stay away from those circumstances that could get you in trouble. It's, it's, you know what? It's real easy to get in trouble. It's real easy. Like I said, sin smells good, tastes good, looks good, feels good. Sin is right there for you. It's not hard to do. Sin, sin comes easy. Righteousness comes difficult or with difficulty. But that's, that's the reasoning behind the policy that has always been in the church and is the policy here yet today. And I realize it's difficult. Uh, thankfully, we moved to Big Sandy when I was in beginning the ninth grade, and we had uh, a lot of young people there at the school. But even there, we had a basically a no-dating policy and a no-hand-holding, no-touching, no-kissing, uh, even in our dances, you had to be sure you stayed far enough apart for the Holy Ghost to get between. I, I saw that line in a movie one time. This nun told these kids, move back, leave room for the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, we're kids and we have, uh, you have urges and desires and thoughts and feelings and and curiosities, and, and it's only natural. So they did their best to try to keep us as separated as they could so there wouldn't be trouble. And that was wise. I'm not saying all the kids all the time kept all the rules the way they should have been kept. I remember seeing one or two kids that didn't do that. But... Uh, uh, Shut up. <laughs> we tried, some of us, uh, and, and some didn't try so hard. And even those that were trying, it was hard. You know, I won't kid you, it was hard. It was difficult. And, and uh, sometimes we did kind of infringe on the rules some. I won't say we didn't. But it did keep us from making big mistakes because we did fear and we did know that we shouldn't be doing those things so it, it did help hold us back. So the rules are a good thing. You can't trust yourself, young people. You can't trust yourself. You might think you can. But there comes a point where the brakes go out. You know? Uh, you try to put them on and they hit the floor. So... Just don't go down too steep a hills, <laughs> and the brakes might work. It's hard to do things right. It was hard for us back then, and I know it's hard for you guys today. And, uh, but you've got to fight the good fight, because you can sure mess your life up. But that, that essentially is why those rules are there, you know? If you have a rule not to hold hands, and hopefully you can follow that, but if you do start holding hands, then the first thing you know, you want to hold shoulders. And then after you hold shoulders, you don't know what you want to get hold of. So let's be careful. Let's try to do things the right way. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, that can be in marriage, that can be in dating, that can be in business, it can be in any facet of life. If you make a deal of any kind with people that are not of like mind, you're asking for trouble. I've seen people make deals and, uh, with non-members and it's difficult and it's difficult marriage, it's difficult dating. You date, you date somebody that's not in 
the church and aren't even really trying to do what's right. They want to do what's wrong. They don't have any reason not to hold back. And they'll want you to do things you shouldn't do. And it's very hard. Peer pressure is very difficult. So just don't get yoked up. Don't get involved with. And that is on any level. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? They're just, the fellowship shouldn't be there. Didn't we read in 1 John, fellowship first with the Father and His Son, and then if you get that right, you'll be able to fellowship with the church. But here it says you should not fellowship with the unrighteous, with the unconverted, with the those who do not believe in God. I mean, our young people aren't converted yet. They're not baptized yet. But this applies either way. If you're spending time, fellowship, we say fellowship, why don't we just say partying or whatever, uh, going out drinking or whatever you want to plug in there, the, the two don't mix. God's way and this world's way don't mix. They won't work. And good usually does not influence bad. 99% of the time bad will influence good. Remember, it's easy to sin. It's hard to be righteous, even if you're by yourself or with people who agree and they're trying to do what's right. It's still hard to do what's right. But if you are those that are bad and are wanting to go the wrong way, it's really tough to try to be the right way. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? They can't commune together. They, should, they have nothing in common. What concord has Christ with Baal? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel, a sinner? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be you separate. Now there is one of the main scriptures and policies on dating, on marriage, on business. Be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. How plain does it need to be? that these aren't just policies in marriage and dating or anything that men have just dreamed up, but these scriptures are pretty plain. And you can't go the way of the world and serve two masters and try to serve God. You try to straddle the fence, you get poked with barbed wire. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. I guess we've already been there. Let me go back there anyway. There might have been one I missed. No, I don't want that one. James 4.4. 4. This will, this just nails it down. James 4.4. 4. It makes it even stronger than anything that we've looked at so far. <clears throat> You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not, this is speaking here not just of physical adultery, but of spiritual adultery too, which is mixing with the world. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you pursue friendships in the world and look to the world for friendship, God says you are his enemy. Do you know what God is going to do to his enemies? He's going to blot them off the face of the earth. How strong a scripture do we need? 
You see why now that these policies have been there all these years in the church. It's not because we don't understand young people or people who want to get married. It's that we do understand, and we understand how people are, and we understand God's Word. And he says, you can't do this and that. If you are a friend of this world, and that's where you make your friends, then God counts you as his enemy. There's, there's no middle ground here. It's, that's just the way it is. What could be more conclusive than that? Now, let's, man, I'm already over what I wanted to go. Let's look at two scriptures real quickly because I want to tie this together with, uh, this is in Second Peter 2. I want to tie the New Testament very closely with the story that we're looking at in Genesis 19 about Lot. To, to see that this applies. Second Peter 2. He's talking about the pernicious ways and the covetousness of the world and, and evil and angels that sinned and rebelled against God and, and what he did with them in verse 4. And even what he did in, to the world in the days of Noah. 120 years building a boat and then he drowned everybody. And then he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where I wanted to go. But he's giving several examples here of how God's dealt with sin. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those that after should live ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were done for an example to this ungodly world today. And it's written here in the New Testament, remembered by Peter, as a specific example that needs to be brought to the people of this world. God is going to do to you exactly what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah if you don't repent and come out of her and be different, my people, and don't touch the unclean thing. those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just or righteous lot, vexed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now, this is an interesting point. We've been reading already that Lot lingered. His wife looked back. There was an emotional attachment. She just couldn't turn her head and go away from it. So as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah were, and as bad as the night before they left the next morning was, they still had trouble cutting loose, and yet Lot essentially was a righteous man who talked about how evil the world is, how evil the city was. Now, how many conversations, brethren, do we have here about how bad things are out in the world, about how things are getting worse, we go back and visit the hometown we came from, and oh, man, everybody's on drugs, they're drinking, they're getting divorced. This world is going to hell in a handbag. You know, we, we have those conversations in various ways, in and out, day after day, week after week, month after month, and how fast the world is going downhill and how soon God is going to destroy it. And the reason I bring that up is because Lot was vexed with the filthy conduct around him, and yet he still had trouble breaking loose. Just as we have all these conversations, and yet the pulls, the desires, the things we want to watch and do and see and become involved in, we recognize evil, and yet we still have trouble separating from it because of our human nature. Sin and wrong looks, tastes, feels, Sounds good to a human mind, a natural human mind. If we have those thoughts and desires, it's not that we're worse than anybody else. We're just like everybody else. But we're trying to be different, to be conformed. I mean, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed and not think like the world anymore. But Lot had trouble with that, and his wife did. 
The Eternal knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. Chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignities. So those who are put in a position to instruct and guide and lead us, they'll diss them, stab them in the back, put them down, and they want to walk after the lusts, the desires of the flesh. And God says he will reserve them for judgment. But he knows how to deliver us out of temptation. Now, when we're tempted to do wrong, we need to go to God and talk to him about it and ask for the strength, the desire, the purpose, the backbone, the willpower, the help of his Holy Spirit to help us keep from sitting. And young people that aren't even converted can do that. I had some prayers answered before I was ever baptized when I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. God understands. He can make exceptions. Just because you're not yet converted and baptized doesn't mean God doesn't hear you. He can and does. And some of you may have experienced situations where God helped you. And he does. No doubt about it. You can get help from God. So that one, and then there's one more in Jude about this very same thing. He's talking here again. He mentions the angels that send and how God has reserved them in darkness to a judgment in verse 6. And then he uses the example again. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, that is, perversion of lesbianism and homosexuality, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here again, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed as an example for any who might be perverted or sinful in the future. So what we are going through in Genesis 19 is very much an owl prophecy for those of us who are living in a very sinful generation. So let's not think, well, that doesn't apply to us because Peter and James both say it really does apply to us and to this age. All right, let's stop there for tonight. Thank you for coming, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk about God's things.